All right, we're back for the first Fried Egg Podcast of 2017, and we're excited to have our esteemed guest, David McClay-Kidd. David is one of the most sought-after modern-day architects and the man behind masterpieces such as Bandon Dunes, Nania Golf Club, and Gamble Sands. David, thanks for coming on. My pleasure. Um, so I think uh, with New Year's in order, I'm, I'm kind of curious, do you have any resolutions for 2017? Hi. That's a good one. I think my, my resolution for the last pushing 10 years now has been to uh, get golf to be fun again and not to get uh, sucked in by the uh, desire to to chase rankings or difficulty or any other particular fad or uh, idiosyncrasy that uh, can be to the detriment of golf and golfers and fun, which is the reason we all do it. So I'm going to keep going on that one uh, and try and build golf courses that are ridiculously good fun for everyone. You know, it's it's funny. I wrote a uh, lengthy article about Golf Digest ranking system and how like the criteria is so flawed and it I, I, I read it I, I had a read through that and I've just the second put uh, uh, Golf Digest down uh, with their ranking stuff and I was just emailing Ron Whitten so uh, funny that you should mention that <laughs> yeah is the the one defense to par is kind of that one just gets me because like why should a golf course get discounted like you know rank get downgraded because it's really fun to play and not necessarily hard you know you know i i get where golf digest and rowan are going with the defense of par uh you know i'd like to think of it more as the defense of birdie uh you know i i'd probably argue that as a golf course designer i should be putting up my best defenses against your best attack and your best attack ends up with birdie right mm-hmm. for most golfers and even if you're a lousy golfer you're getting a net birdie because you got strokes so i'm going to put up my best defense uh, if we take gamble sands as a as my best example to date i defy you to easily make birdie on every hole i will i will contain that gamble sands put up puts up a very healthy defense against birdie you got to thread the driver exactly in the right place you got to put that ball on the green so that it rolls out to a makeable putt what would we say a makeable putt is six feet eight feet ten feet and then you got to hole it on yeah. an average par four i i've put up more than a good defense of that par now you know now i'm just asking you to put it in the middle get it somewhere around or on the green and two putt. So I'm not trying that hard to defend par. I think that a golfer's own inability to perform defends against par. And certainly when it switches to bogey and double bogey, I reverse gears completely. And now I'm trying to be your friend. I'm trying to make sure you can make those scores, not end up with snowmen. So I see where Golf Digest tries to go with the defensive par, but I'd rather see it as defensive birdie. Uh, and the whole resistance to scoring, you know, that again sends a message to their ranking panel that a higher score is better. And I, I've had my debates on Twitter with a couple of guys in the media on this. You know, the, the message that's being sent out one way or another is that harder is better. And it's still continuing to perpetuate that harder is better. That Golf Digest you're talking about has Pine Valley ranked as number one. That's a really, really hard golf course. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's uh, got incredible architecture lineage, but it is one of the hardest golf courses in the world. Um, you know, and I think with when it comes to you know, kind of fun and the mass public, like you know, a scratch player can play any golf course from any tee and have fun, but it's the fifteen that gets hurt by hard golf courses continuing to get built over and over and over again. Um, you know, and, and, and if it's and not fun average to play, guy. Yeah, and if it's not fun to play, why why would you play the sport? I think that all too often, you know, that's where golf courses fall down, is there are lots of golf courses that the average golfer is invited to 
wants to play because he sees them in the magazines. He goes, he plays for whatever reason, and somewhere on the front nine when he's lost a few balls and his buddies are helping him hunt his third ball in the rough, he thinks to himself, ah, it's too much for me. I'm really not having that much fun. I wish these holes would run out quicker because I feel embarrassed. Uh, and this reminds me why I don't really love this game. And so he finishes his round out and decides not to play again for a while. And I think that that happens all too often. The number of courses where that same guy goes out and he's told you're on the 12th hole or the 14th hole and he says to himself, oh, hell, the holes are running out already. I'm having so much fun. I want to do this again. That happens far less than the opposite. And my job, my my peer's job, is to create golf courses where that average golfer wants to go and do it again, is upset that the holes are running out. And that's what Bandon Dunes, all of the courses at Bandon Dunes do so well, is the average golfer has an absolute blast and wants to play over and over and over. Mm-hmm. So, you know, outside of Bandon Dunes and in your travels, what would you say are some of yours and other architects' best examples of, you know, that fun golf course where they want to just keep playing? I'm not sure I understand. Outside of what? Outside of outside of Bandon Dunes, you know, what would be some other examples across uh, the states and also abroad of courses that kind of fit that description? You know, weirdly enough, I I, I want to be contrary. You know, in in my my business, I I would like to be as best I can be some kind of a disruptor. And so, in order to be just those two things. I'll throw Oakmont at you as an example. Oakmont is the perfect uh, example of why I would argue that playability and challenge are not two sides of a scale of justice. They're not linked. Oakmont is incredibly difficult, but yet incredibly playable. The average golfer can go out and shoot 100, but he'll do it with the same golf ball. The course is wide and playable. The, the target zones to chase birdies or even pars are very tight. The course is really long. Uh, so to a good golfer, it is a hell of a stiff challenge. But to an average golfer, it could still have a whole lot of fun. Pine Valley, on the other hand, which I've had the privilege of playing a number of times, really good for a good golfer. I'm a six handicap, so reasonably good. I can have great fun. I can aim at the spots you're supposed to aim at. I can hit it to roughly where I was supposed to. But one mistake on any given hole, and you're making double, triple snowmen. I mean, it gets ugly really, really fast. There's little chance of recovery because of the severity of the ruts, uh, the severity around the greens. There's, there's, it's very severe. The, the, the playability is low and the challenge is very high. Where at Oakmont, the... The playability is pretty high, and and the challenge is also pretty high. It's it's interesting. I um, I was just writing a review today about a course here in Chicago that I thought you know is very easy to make bogeys at, but making pars and birdies is really difficult. Similar to the way you describe Oakmont, um, which is you know it, it you know it might be the only person that's ever described Oakmont as being very playable, um, but it, I, ma- it makes complete sense. It. I didn't play it before all the trees came out. So, with the the with it covered in trees, it may have been a completely different story. But uh, I played it post the tree removal uh, and thought to myself, "This is great. I want to play again." You know, I think I can do better. And of course, next time I went out to see if I could do better, I did worse. <laughs> but I had great fun, and I I don't think I lost the ball because you can. It's open. Yeah. So. Um... With that, you know, you touched on width as one of the reasons Oakmont is playable. What are what are some other strategies um, that you employ and use that kind of create that playability while still challenging the scoring and the birdies? Well, here's a stat for you: the average player uh, misses the green more than half the time. Right? Mm-hmm. They just don't hit the putting surface with their approach shots. And yet, golf course designers rarely spend as much time thinking about the surrounds to the green 
as they do with the green itself. And yet more than half the shots are played from around the greens. So as a golf course designer, it behooves us to make sure that those golfers that miss the green, which is every golfer, you know, just it's just a question of percentages, uh, doesn't get put in jail because they miss the green by a few yards. And our, you know, the kind of rule of thumb that I come up with now is if you're doing an irrigated golf course, those heads are spaced 60 feet apart. And anything inside that, uh, you're actually spending more money to irrigate. So if you have the space on the site, you may as well leave, you know, somewhere in the up to 60 feet around the green for someone to recover. So take that a step further. When they're recovering, are they recovering to make birdie? No. No, of course not. Are they recovering to make par? Well, they'd like to. So I'll go back to my argument that defensive birdie is what I'm about, not defensive par. If I can let someone miss the green, not put them in jail, and give them a, you know, maybe a 50-50 chance that they could still get up and down, is that not going to lead to more fun? I would contend, the minute you yes. miss the green, take Pine Valley. You miss a green at Pine Valley... How many times would you actually lose the ball if you missed the green at Pine Valley? A bunch. Mm-hmm. I mean, you could actually lose the ball. Yeah. You'd lose stroke and distance. Now you're scrabbling for double. <laughs> yeah, it's um, the places that uh, are overly penal around the, the greens. And I think that's where the good players are infinitely better than the average and the bad players is around the greens with their recovery capabilities and shots. So the tougher it is around the greens, the wider the separation you would get, correct? That, that would be a reasonable analysis to make. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I... to change gears a little bit, I think, um, I, I think I'd love to hear about how you got into golf course architecture um, in the first place. Um, so was it growing up or um, you know, what, what got you growing really up. into it? Okay. Growing up, my, my father was a, a greenkeeper in Scotland. So my father, as a, a young man, uh, worked at Ranfurly Castle Golf Club on the west side of Glasgow. Uh, and then from there, went to Glasgow Golf Club, which is the sixth or seventh, maybe the fifth, but somewhere in there, oldest golf course in the world, 1790-odd. Uh, and he was the head greenkeeper there for 12 years. So that was most of my young childhood through elementary school. That's where he was the head greenkeeper. And then in the early 80s, he went to Glen Eagles, which had just been sold by the railway company who had kind of run it into the ground. And a a new private equity company bought it, and they wanted to bring it back to its former glory in the 20s and 30s. And so my father was instrumental in uh, renovating the James Braid courses at Glen Eagles back to their former glory and then working with Nicholas to build uh, the PGA course which hosted the Ryder Cup the last time it was in Europe so that was my background, my childhood in and around golf uh, son of one of the most influential golf course superintendents certainly in Scotland possibly in Europe and if I could be so bold, you know, maybe across the world. He did a lot for his uh, peers. He brought a professionalism to it that didn't exist in the 60s and 70s. Uh, and, you know, I was raised with that as a, as a model. I loved everything about golf courses. Uh, and when I got to decide my own path, uh, I worked for a golf construction company and came to really love the creative part of golf, the creation of new golf courses and the uh, adjustment of existing golf courses. So I sort of took another step on from what my father had done at Glen Eagles with the Braid courses and the new Nicholas course. And I've been doing that ever since. That's, uh... That's a, a very quick pricey on how my uh, career has uh, moved from early childhood to today. So you got the Bandon Dunes project at, was it age 28, correct? Uh, 26, I think I was. 1994 uh, was when I first uh, saw the site and met Mike. 
and then 97 we started building it uh, and 99 it opened so uh, I was 30 just over 30 when we finished it uh-huh so it was it was your first solo design correct mm, not quite but close uh-huh. close enough so as not to matter so did you did you have a kind of a feeling of you know what you were onto there like you know where you're kind of where the first course to revolutionize what now is becoming what resort golf is all about and destination golf is about um and you know kind of did you feel that magnitude when you were you know in those early stages no not at all <laughs> it didn't have a name you know no one knew what it was going to be called uh for a while i i tried to convince mike to call it mckenzie national uh or whiskey run or something else a few other names that we kicked around uh mike kaiser was you know some you know relatively successful businessman from chicago with no pedigree in golf it's not like mike's a ex-pro golfer or a, a developer of notes you know he did recycled paper for his entire career and made some money at it and he enjoyed playing golf as an average golfer so and he's hiring a young Scottish guy who's got exactly zero pedigree. Well, that's not quite true. I had the pedigree of my father, and that's really what Mike was hiring. Mm-hmm. So, so there, there was no expectation. We thought that the tiny little group that was part of it, we thought that we could build something really, really cool, something off the hook. But lots of people think that. Everyone... You know, there's, I don't know anyone in, our, in my business that doesn't think that what they're currently building isn't going to be great. Just the same way any musician or film director doesn't think what they're working on isn't going to be the next Oscar winner. So I'm not sure that we really, truly believed in our hearts that it was going to be what it ended up being. No, no one did. I mean, we, we thought we were going to build something cool on the Oregon coast that a few people might see and think was cool as well. But we lived in a time where golf courses were lush, green lakes, car paths, perfect service. You know, Bannon Dunes back in the mid to late 90s when it was conceived and created was the polar opposite to what golf was. Everyone watched Augusta, and everybody, everybody was pushing towards that. The economy was booming, and uh, and this unheard-of guy from Chicago hiring an unheard-of Scotsman is going to build a golf course in an unheard-of place in America. Where do you see a recipe for success in that description? <laughs> it's it's interesting. Um, you know, a lot of people in tech say that the greatest ideas are the ones that people think are the craziest. I mean, take Uber, for example. Who would have thought 10 years ago we'd be getting in random people's cars, you know, and not taxi cabs? Yeah. So. Yeah, and uh, I, I'll, I'll give you another one that, you know, Mike's genius is his ruthless simplicity. He is ruthlessly simple. If you come up with an idea to Mike, uh, Kaiser I'm talking about, that is the best idea on planet Earth, and you can absolutely prove it to be true, but it has 10 moving parts, he, I don't think he'd be interested. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you come up with an idea that's got no moving parts, he's going to pick that one. It's uh... or a, an analogy, of course, but simplicity is what he's good at. And uh, I've, I've had the pleasure of working for Mike 20 years ago and today. And in the 20 years in between, I've worked for so many incredibly smart people around the world. Some of the richest, some of the smartest, some of the most celebrated. And none of them have the raw simplicity of thought that Mike has. And that's that's where I think his true genius is. It's just really, really, he simplifies everything. And the simplicity of that you know, he, he, I don't want to say he forcibly, he enforces it on those that work with him and for him. Uh, and uh, he brings out the very best in those people because he forces them to come up with 
the the easiest, simplest solutions to every every problem. That makes a lot of sense. Um, so you're currently working on uh, another Mike Kaiser project, uh, Sand Valley, up in Wisconsin. A you know another kind of crazy unknown site. A sand hills abound all over this great piece of land in the middle of nowhere, Wisconsin. Why don't you tell us a little bit about what uh, we can expect when the uh, David Kidd course opens up there? Well, the first thing is, you know, I, I said a few times now that Anningen's was the edge of nowhere, and now Mike found the middle of nowhere uh, <laughs> in Rome, Wisconsin. Uh, and it is it's shocking for those that visit for the first time. You're driving through rural Wisconsin with flat, dairy lands on both sides and then maybe some timber uh, and in the middle of the state there's a few thousand acres of sand dunes and they're not even hills they're they're dunes they're steep they're they're sharp on one side they're soft on the other side they look like they could be on the irish coast it's very very surreal and the sand that's on them is white sugar sand uh it, it's the most unusual thing. It's not the same sand that exists through the sand belt of Nebraska that's very fine gray-brown sand. This is white sugar sand. Uh, and then the vegetation that grows there is these thin, wispy sedge grasses uh, and uh, prairie oaks and pines. I mean, it's, uh, it's amazing that this exists at all and amazing yet that no one built a golf course on it. Uh, as, as a student of golf and golf course development over the last 150 years, we all look at the Augusta Nationals or the Pine Valleys and we think, oh, wouldn't it be great to find a site like that? But of course they don't exist because these were all built on 100 years ago. That's why they don't exist. They're already built on. And yet here we are 120 years later, about... Mike Kaiser stumbles right into a few thousand acres in the middle of Wisconsin that could have been built by Crump a hundred years ago. Mm-hmm. So um, that course is going to be open for preview play next year. We have six holes uh, on our course that are grassed: the first and the second, and then the fifteenth, sixteenth, seventeenth, and eighteenth. So the very beginning and the very end of the the golf course is completely done, grassed. Uh, people were hitting golf balls around them at the end of last year, and by this coming summer, uh, the Kaisers intend to open those six holes for preview play, the same as they did with the Kerr Crenshaw course. And incrementally through the summer, six holes will likely turn into nine and then 12. And by the end of the summer, uh, if maybe a few people, Mike and a few friends, might get to hit a ball around all 18. Uh, although it will be extremely uh, young at that point, the final few rules, which are likely to be around 10, 11, 12, that sort of area. Uh, and then 2018, the, the start of that season, the course will open up to everyone. Mm-hmm. So with a site like... With a site like Ban or with a site like Banded Dunes or Sand Valley, where you have kind of a expansive landscape, uh, what are the what are the challenges with a big, you know, land site versus where you're kind of constricted and you may might have to route around housing developments? How do those two different types of uh, projects, uh, like, what are some of the tough things about each of those? Uh, you know, funnily enough, when you're given no constraints, uh, it can have its own struggles. When when you're given a piece of land that's got no boundaries, you know, Michael Kaiser, Mike's son, uh, is the one that we that my team deal with on a day to day basis, and and he's really been the driving force of this project on the ground. Him and his brother Chris, uh, you know, they, they they told us right from the beginning. You know, well, pick any piece of land you want. You know it somewhere proximate to the Crenshaw course, any side you want. Well, where are the boundaries? Well, we've got kind of a deal with the existing landowner that, you know, we can buy up whatever we want. We've got options on it. So with no limitations, it becomes a real struggle because you're spoiled with choices. You're, you're not quite sure where to go. Uh, and believe it or not, that can, 
you can end up like a deer in headlights where you just don't know where to go. So what we did is we, we knuckled down and we used a little bit of technology to help us because the, the, the land mass was so large. We looked at it uh, on a, a much larger scale, much larger than you could ever do on the ground with your feet. And we looked at Google Earth and aerial mapping and we figured out sort of where the major landforms were. And we saw from the, the, the satellite photography that there was a giant ridge uh, slightly to the northeast of the Kerr Crenshaw course. And this ridge, V-shaped ridge that points effectively due east with the open end of the V due west was pretty big. Each part of the V about a mile long, ranging up to about 80 feet high, uh, you couldn't see it walking the ground. You, you'd see a hill, but you wouldn't understand that this was actually part of this giant landform. So we decided that we would take this giant imposing landform and see if we could figure out how to route an 18-hole golf course around it. And that's when we got out on the ground and we really started to hike. And over a few weeks, we hiked and hiked and hiked and figured out how to get a golf course around it and through it and over it. Uh, and we had the clubhouse at the head of the V, the eastern end, at the sharp point, if you like, looking back out the uh, the wide end of the V. And when all was said and done and we won the, the bake-off that Mike ran between ourselves and Tom Doak and uh, a couple of others, uh, he said, yeah, I like the plan, I love all the holes, it's all great, but could you flip the clubhouse to the other end of the site and keep all the holes just the way they are? <laughs> and that's the kind of thing that Mike will do. You know, he changed the fundamental core of our design by flipping the clubhouse and then said, oh, I don't want you to redesign it, figure out how to make it work. That is no easy challenge. You know, I really like the car you designed. I'd really like it only to have three wheels. I want everything you gave me. I want the six seats, steering wheel in the same spot, everything you've given me. I'd just rather it only had three wheels. Mm. <laughs> that level of difficulty. But you know what? He figures that we're smart people and we'll figure it out. Sure enough, we figured it out. Mm -hmm. The holes are all pretty much exactly where they were on the original plan. The only thing that we really changed were the numbers. Mm -hmm. So, so now in its current routing, it, it goes out, up the landform, down the landform, and back, kind of? That's correct. Yeah, now the clubhouse, which will actually be the main clubhouse for the whole development, is on the western end of this giant V, at the open end of the V. You're, you're basically at the, I haven't thought of this before, but the clubhouse is really at the, the, the stock end of the arrow and you're looking down the arrow. Uh, that's cool. So it, it, that's, uh, that's, I mean, it's gotta be kind of a, a crazy thing to have all that land and just have to figure it out. Do you, so when you found that landform, is it then do you work from the greens back or how did, you know, I've, I've read, you know, different architects route holes and courses different ways. Um, how, how did you kind of go about laying out the holes? You know, for, for me, it's more about laying out the circulation, the, the routing, if you will. You know, people think about routing and they immediately think about par three, par four, par five. I, I would prefer to think about routing as just a, a thread, a, a, a pathway, if you will, through a landscape. You know, how are we going to circulate our way around this in a pleasing fashion? Uh, and we know that along the route of this, wonderful walk there are some very obvious green and tea sites but the first thing to do is to get this flowing a uh, path if you like around the piece of land and because without that we might fall in love with half a dozen green sites but not be able to connect them together so you really need to be able to come up with a, a thread through the site and, and then from there you well you know i know i've got that green or this set of teas that I really want to get included. That's why the thread goes the way it does. But is that green site a par three or a par five? You know, that's going to figure itself out as you start to add flesh onto that skeleton of a routing. 
Uh, and so that's what we end up doing. And to be honest, working with Mike, he's so in tune with that process that even now, after having built six holes and shaped another six, there are individual holes on that thread of a layout that we still don't fully know are going to be what we initially thought. There are par fours that might, might end up as par fives and vice versa because we still haven't quite decided what the best sequence will be. We're, we're still making those little adjustments. And I, can, I, know, uh, I know for a fact that that's exactly the way that Kurt Crenshaw works, uh, and I'm sure Tom Dope works the same way and a few others, that they're constantly looking for improvement in their design all the way until the design is fully built. They're, they're willing to change things right up to the last minute. And, and that, I guess that's where... The, the core crux of change comes when you're working on projects that are more defined when you're doing mass engineering projects and housing developments you know that your ability to to work on the fly gets reduced and reduced I mean we try hard to maintain as much flexibility as we can but as the projects get more complex engineering wise cost wise your ability to to do things on the fly reduces so with the, with the design process, what are some of your favorite and least favorite aspects of it? Uh, the the most fun part of it is the shaping. You know, when you when you're taking the the bones of whatever drawings were done and you're actually putting them down in in the dirt for the first time uh, in their rawest form. There's no drainage irrigation in yet. There's all you've really done is clear and and you're roughing it in with big dozers, that's probably the most fun. Because it's highly creative and there's no such thing as, a, as, as wrong. There's, there's a lot of uh, things that you might want to do differently or things that you might want to add in that are challenging, but there's nothing wrong at that point where when it gets down to drainage and irrigation and grass and things, it you know, becomes more technical and again you're less able to to change at those points the the mass shaping operation is where the most creativity and the most changes can happen mm -hmm. that that shaping area is kind of where you know this you can make it look natural without with it being man-made correct with the right kind of tech. Correct. all right yeah um you can and and you can you can do all, there are so many tricks to that uh, that are very difficult. That That's where the real skill lays, is that uh, relationship between the design guys, the shaping guys, even down into the, the maintenance guys to, to make that shaping uh, speak to the player so that they feel something, so that they get that sense of whatever it is you're after excitement, trepidation, thrill, hopefully all of it, mm -hmm. memorability. Uh, it all comes at that. That's the core stage right there. The, nothing else before or after can make such a massive difference. So, um, and what's the aspect of your job that you'd be happy if you never had to do again? Not saying you dislike it, but... Oh. That's challenging. I, I, I love all of it. Uh, which part do I like the least? Uh, uh, the administration part's not that much fun. I try and have people really, really good at doing that stuff so I don't have to do a whole lot of it. Because mm -hmm. that stuff is challenging. And in the world we live in, there's lots of bureaucracy. Yeah. It, it SWIP can... requirements, OSHA requirements, contractor license requirements, insurance requirements, on and on and on and on. Mm -hmm. So um, with you being kind of of the minimalist school of design and natural, you know, design, how do you view a place like uh, Shadow Creek in Nevada where everything is manufactured and you know it gets a claim for how much earth they moved and the incredibleness of how lush it is how do you view courses like that when you compare them to say abandoned dunes uh i i they're two different things you know they're different genres 
No, when you say minimalist, you know, I uh, I think sometimes that does a disservice to to what we're really doing. I mean, the, the how much minimalism is there? Sometimes there's probably less than you think. Uh, but when we're done, those that you would put in that camp, you would think that we did almost nothing. Where it's very difficult for Tom Fazio to try and make you think he did very little when you drive in the gates at Shadow Creek and you're out in the flat Nevada desert, and then you find yourselves in the yourself in the foothill foothills of the Rockies. I uh, I played Shadow Creek and I thought it was absolutely incredible. I mean, an absolutely incredible example of the skill set that uh, exists in the golf business. I mean, it's unbelievable. Uh, you can get into all sorts of debates about whether that whether someone likes it or not, or whether it's sustainable or not. Uh, but I, I don't think any golfer would ever play Shadow Creek and say, well, I just thought that was crap. You know, I thought it was terrible. I think they'd all play it and say, that was, that's incredible. It's not for me. I, I, I want to play something that's real like that. But I, I played it and thought it was wonderful. And I'd play it again tomorrow, especially if it's snowing here. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, you know, in terms of your influences, uh, who are some architects um, of you know, the golden age and past and even present that you really look to kind of as some of your influences? Well, I, I get tired of reading how my peers are influenced by the, the golden age architects uh, because the golden age architects were the, the guys that came after the, the, the architects that influenced me because none of those guys or very few of them ever worked in the United Kingdom. So my childhood was spent around courses done by old Tom Morris and James Braid and Colt and Varden and Taylor and, you know, all that kind of stuff. You know, it wasn't Mackenzie or, or McDonald. Uh, so uh, those courses have obviously influenced me in my uh, early or middle career, if you like, now that I live in the U.S. But my early influences were not those. They were... You know, mostly old Tom Morris and James Braid. Those were the courses I hung out on, Glen Eagles uh, and the old Macrahanish course uh, on the west coast of Scotland. Uh, Turnbury, Braid again. Uh, those were the courses I hung out on. And they fit the model of what came after uh, very well. They, they didn't move much dirt. They worked on great sites. Uh, and they put a premium on golf course architecture strategy. Mm-hmm. It, well, it's it's interesting because, you know, a lot of the great, you know, the McKenzie's and the, you know, Donald Ross's and uh, the C.B. McDonald's learned from uh, old Tom Morris. So you play, growing up and playing braid courses and old Tom Morris is kind of like going through the same education they did back in their day. I would like to think so. That would be good. So And currently, we, we live in a, an absolutely fantastic time I, I wonder if you know the past generation of designers could truly have said the same thing uh, in the 80s and 90s compared to what we live in today you know since the the mid 90s you know we live in a, a time where golf courses have become golf courses again a premium on walkability uh, naturalism uh, shot making strategy uh, raw beauty, uh, simplicity in the grassing, uh, sustainability. You know, these things all exist today. It didn't exist in the late 80s, early 90s. They were, they were trumped up gardens. You know, it was all waterfalls and bluegrass. And, uh, you know, there, there were things that looked pretty on a plan to sell real estate by the billions. Uh, now so many golf courses have been built for golf's sake and that's a great thing you know that my my peers my competitors today are the strongest group i would argue since the golden age so if you were uh, building a course and you couldn't pick yourself uh to do the project who would you pick 
And then who and and then also name one, you know, kind of up and coming young architect that nobody, you know, we may never have heard of. Oh, that's a tough one. Uh, if I couldn't pick me, uh, I think a lot of it is, you know, you'd have to see the reaction of that particular designer. You know, you'd bring them out to your site and you'd see how they reacted, you know, and that's going to be a product of their experience and their current position in, in the world and their career, you know. Uh, if they're super hot and super busy and they're, it's a site that they like but don't love, that that vibe is going to come off. Uh, and yet the opposite would be true. You know, they're full of passion and not that busy and desperate to, to pour every ounce of their heart and soul into something. You know, that vibe's going to come off. Uh, who would I pick if I couldn't pick me? Well, I, I hate to be further biased, but I'd pick one of the two guys that were, has been working with me for the last 10 years because one day they will be the guys out there doing it and I'll be sitting in my armchair and at 50 later this year, that might not be, you know, that's not forever. That's 10 years away, 20 years away. And that probably exists for a few of those guys, you know, whether it's Tom Doak's uh, collaborators over the last 20 years or Bill Coors collaborators. The, the next crop of enthusiastic young designers is right there. You just don't know their names yet. Yeah, definitely. Um, one of your guys, Casey, has been helping us out with uh, our Ask, that, Ask an Architect uh, series he, and just seems like a really bright guy. Yeah, well, Nick Sean. Uh, who's also been with me for 10 years he did he and I did all the routing work at Sand Valley uh, and it was Nick and I that were the the two guys that did all the work to get to that bake-off that Mike ran and then once we got to construction Casey's been the guy on the ground taking that initial vision and making it a reality uh, so it, it's a team effort although I get to, to to play the band leader I'm certainly not playing all the instruments on my own mm-hmm so we, we talked with uh, Keith Reb, who does a lot of shaping for Core and Crenshaw, and he, he said that, you know, those guys have a pretty hands-off approach when it comes to their associates where, you know, if he sees something at the site um, and he's on the dozer shaping it, they let him kind of just rip and, and say, you know, have your freedoms. Are you kind of that same way with a little bit of hands-off and, you know, trusting your people? Uh, I don't think so. Uh, I think we're uh, more hands-on. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, I think that from a shaping perspective, we certainly want shapers that are willing to collaborate with us and be involved in the process. But uh, I don't think very often we're saying to our shaping guys, just go ahead and give me something. We're, that's not usually how it's working. We're usually giving them uh, a, a, some kind of steer uh, on where to start, and then we're manipulating that process all the way through to the end. Mm-hmm. You know, a, a, a big difference would be when uh, Bill and Ben, you know, their shapers are really a key core part of their design staff. They're, they effectively have their design staff driving the dozers. Uh, slightly differently, our design staff uh, are in the field and um, managing those dozers and the, those shapers are, I don't want to uh, downplay that their input, it's huge, uh, but we're not that often saying, okay, you know, go ahead and, and build me something you think is cool and I'll be back next week. Mm-hmm. We're usually saying, you know, cut that down, push that over there, I'll be back in an hour or two. Mm-hmm. So, something I'm curious about with the architecture industry is, you know, so I think you probably can speak to this as you're young and you're hungry and you finally get that first job and say yours was, you know, your big job was Band and Dunes. And then all of a sudden you're, you know, the hottest name in architecture and you've got more jobs flying at you than you can handle with. Like, how tough is that to adjust to? Very, very tough very tough. I look back at, you know, my early 30s and realize, you know, how 
tough that really was, although I didn't see it at the time. You know, in any other industry, I would have had a support network to help work through that, to make the best choices, to be surrounded by the best, most supportive people. Uh, but because it's not really an industry, because it's, you know, like a hobby going mad, uh, when that happens, you know, you're kind of on your own, at least I was. You know, I was a, an immigrant into the U.S. with no, you know, support group. Uh, and suddenly, you know, I have this success on my hands and I'm being offered projects and you you don't really... It, it, it was a difficult thing to... Looking back at, it was one of those... Certainly a first world problem, but, uh, you know, what, what to do? What, what would be the best choices be? Who am I talking to? Are these people good or bad, you know? And I, I don't think I'd change much, but I'd change a few things. Mm-hmm. What, what would be a couple of things that you changed, uh, would have changed? I, you know, the, the quant- quantity of work is directly related to the quality. And when you're, when you're too busy, you know, you spread yourself too thin and that has its obvious drawbacks. Uh, and at times through my 20 years since Band and Dunes, you know, there are times when you're just too thin on the ground. Uh, and in hindsight, it would, have be, it would be easy to say, well, I'll do this and this and not that and that. Uh, and, you know, I'm hopeful that with 20 years of experience, hopefully at the very highest level, I can give that experience to my small crew and pass that experience and knowledge on so that they're better equipped as they move forward in their careers. It's, it's interesting. I think uh, a lot of what you said goes to like writing. I see where when I'm trying to write a ton of content, you know, it, it doesn't get as um, good. You know, if I take my time and really put, you know, a lot of time into a piece, it, it's always going to turn out better than when I'm trying to write three things at once. And it, it, I think it's true with almost anything in life. It is. And it, it, the only way you can deal with it is some sort of self-limiting mechanisms. Uh, and if you can put some self-limiting mechanisms in, then things get easier, better. Mm-hmm. You know, I, uh, at one point I had two offices, one in the U.S. and one in the U.K. That was not a self-limiting mechanism. That just made for more uh, and you know, I, I deemed success as quantity, not uh, quality. Uh, and so I did that for a few years and then closed the office that we had in London. Uh, and that made life a lot easier and meant I was doing less and spending more time on things. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I have a, a daughter and I, when she was young, I made a commitment to, to be home as much as I could, certainly on a sort of every other weekend basis, at least I would be at home. So that sort of limited my ability to go chase jobs in China or you know, far-flung flung places in the world. So that became a self-limiting mechanism. So by putting a few of these in my own way, uh, they started to hone down the number of things that I could take on. And so by doing so, the quality increases. Yeah, what, what would you say is, you know, I'm curious, is the ideal number of projects that you'd have in a, in a given year? Well, my answer to that question is always the same, that you need at least one. <laughs> Otherwise, it gets really hungry. Yeah. So you need one. Uh, I would say probably three. You know, if you've got three projects all at the same time, chances are one of them is just starting, one of them's midway through, one of them's coming to an end, and you've got your eyeball on the next one to add to the chain. So I would say sort of three is maximum capacity that at least my firm could cope with that are active in construction at any one time. We could be working on a dozen that are on the drawing boards because half of them will never happen anyway. Uh, but actually in construction, I would say three is the is the perfect number that you could get to, you could work on, and you could deal with. Right now, we have two major projects in construction at the same time, and a third that only opened last September. So for most of 2016, we had three projects in construction all at the same time. And for me to spend significant time on all three, you can imagine 
you're not home as much as you'd like to be. You're on the road a lot. Uh, and so you add another one in, you're never at home. Add another one on top of that, now you're never at the fourth job. Yeah, I can imagine if you took some international ones, then you got the travel problems too. I mean, that's almost like a job and a half in itself. Absolutely. So, uh, you know, that, that is, those are the, then maybe that's an answer to an earlier question that you had, you know, what's the thing that you like the least? And I said administration, you know, maybe it's the travel. Mm-hmm. The travel is a, is a bear that can be really, really hard. Uh, you're away from your family and the ones you love and you're, you're on the road. You know, I, I when I, I have done a lot of international travel, you know, my friends and town would say, yeah, 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 but it's okay for you. You know, you're flying, you know, business class on a flat bed. And I'll remind them that the very next night when I'm climbing into United seat, you know, 3A next to a stranger on a hard bed that's 18 inches wide, they'll be getting into their super king with their fluffy down. Yeah, that's uh, very, very true. Um, so you you touched on one of your other pro- your other projects, uh, Rolling Hills in L.A., which just got some big news with USC announcing they're going to host the Pac-12 championships there next year. Um, I'm curious to hear a little bit about that project. Um, you know, it's a pretty unknown uh, course when you're talking big names in L.A. and and kind of what you saw with that project. It's my sleeper. Uh, that Rolling Hills Country Club was uh, first created in the for the '60s, I believe, and it was a small parcel of land that they built like a nine-hole pitch and putt on. And then the local members bought another piece of land and another piece. And over the course of 30 or 40 years, they took a very small site, less than 100 acres, and they eked 18 holes out of it, but only just narrow fairways deep terrain, uh, no real design to speak of, you know, sort of cobbled together over 30 years. Uh, and the, a very affluent and enthusiastic membership in Palos Verdes, one of the wealthiest parts of LA. Uh, but they really didn't have, they had a golf club, but not a golf course, if you know what I mean. Uh, what happened was some of the land that they had acquired, they really had leased was from a bounding sand quarry to their north, the Chandler Sand Pit. And the Chandler Sand Pit is known throughout LA as one of the best sources of sand to build golf greens. So they mined out the Chandler Sand Quarry for 80 odd years and they filled it up with rubble and then they crushed the concrete and sold that and then they dug some more sand and this went on for 80 odd years until they excavated it, all of the commercially viable sand out of it and the Chandler's family were left scratching their heads wondering what to do with this big hole in the ground in Palos Verdes Uh, and over the last 20 years believe it or not they've collaborated with the club and they came to an agreement where the club would put in all the land they owned the quarry would put in all the land they owned and a developer would be sought to develop the, the combined land parcel which is 350 odd acres and so to pay for the development of a new golf course uh, 110 home sites were earmarked within that 350 acres uh, in one core pretty much in one big block Uh, and the new golf course uh, pretty well starts uh, within the old quarry and wanders out through where the original golf course was and then finishes back into where the quarry uh, is today uh, and the quarry is still a sand pit. So all of the sand that was remnants of the quarrying operation, we harvested and used to build the golf course. So many of the holes are sitting on top of sand anyway because they're in the quarry, and the rest of the golf course, we dug out hundreds of thousands of tons of sand, and we caked the whole place in sand before we finished the shaping. So by hook or by crook, we have a sand golf course with acres of open sand areas and dried arroyos and or barrancas as they would be down there, uh, all with uh, Bermuda grass fairways and giant bent grass greens and green complexes that are all in bent grass. So the course is acres and acres of grass, very wide, 
hopefully very strategic, not overly long. I mean, I think we're going to be north of 7,000, but not by much. Uh, but a, a, a lot of green light holes that these young buck college players can go bombing it after, knowing that they can make birdies and eagles all day long. Or maybe they'll make, they'll trip themselves up. We'll see what I can leave in their path. So uh, with that, you know, how is it with dealing with the kind of changing game and the ball that keeps going further? I mean, I play competitively, and these college kids hit it just, I mean, seemingly forever. I played with a 14-year-old that hit it over 300 yards the other day. Yeah, the, the ball is certainly the the limiting factor at the at that elite level the the ball is is an issue uh for the average golfer not really an issue uh and when i have these conversations with people in the golf media and they're going on about the golf ball and the equipment's making the game too easy you know you have to kind of remind them that the average golfer isn't any better than the average golfer was 10 years or 20 years or 30 years ago uh and so anything we can do to make the average golfer have more fun through equipment or ball, I'm all for. Mm-hmm. As far as the average golfer is concerned, I'm all about what they did in tennis or what they did for skiing, whatever you can do so that the average golfer has more fun playing the sport we all love, I'm totally for it. That's a totally different question to what do you do at the other end of the scale with the professional golfers and elite college golfers where they can hit the ball so far that the strategy strategy of the golf course is nullified I mean that the, surely that is completely contrary to what the game is about if the college player can hit it that far and now the golf course has no natural defense you know if there's nothing left and he's putting it to 80 yards on every hole and gap wedging it in what, what was the point now now it's just, now it truly is just a putting contest yeah, I think I think that's a uh, great point. I mean, I I go both ways because there's still you know as in say you're an amateur, a high level amateur player, but not a, a professional. It, it's there's just a it's a it's a very difficult topic because you know at what point do you start playing with the professional ball? At what point do you play with the regular ball? You know that's the tricky part of it. Mm, yeah, I mean it's tricky, but. Uh, there's lots of tricky things. What do you do? I mean, how do you handle it? Mm-hmm. Eventually, you have to do something. Yeah. So doing nothing, I don't think, if we can agree that doing nothing is not an option, now you just have to figure out the something, however tricky it might be, there has to be a something. I agree with that. So something needs to I don't to know change. what the something is. You know, My thought has always been that Augusta would be a, this would be a wonderful leading point by the, the Committee of Augusta National. The, the RNA and the USGA don't have the money to defend themselves against uh, a, a ruling against the ball. But Augusta don't have to answer to anyone. Invitation-only tournament, if you want to come and play, this is the ball we'll be playing. If you don't want to come and play, you're entirely welcome to turn down the invite. Don't expect it again next year. That's uh, it. That would be one organization that can do it and definitely would enforce it, and people, I think, would fall in line for it. Um, with us butting up here close to an hour, I wanted to get to some of our Twitter questions. Um, our first one comes from Simon, um, and he would like to know what you'd do differently if you had your time again at the Castle Course in St. Andrews. Uh, you know, I would tamper down the putting surfaces. You know, the putting surfaces were just too rejective, too many uh, slopes on the greens that pushed a ball away rather than uh, allowed it to stay or even gathered. Uh, so certainly uh, dialing back the greens, you know, by 25% wouldn't have hurt my feelings. Uh, and then the area around the greens, the ability to miss with your approach shot pin high and still have a recovery shot uh, was something that wasn't as in the forefront of my mind as it is today. Those two things alone uh, would would and are, because the, the greens are being mellowed, make a huge difference. Well, 
what I think is lost is that there were so many things that I think my team and I got right. I mean, that site was a potato field. There were, it was devoid of any interest whatsoever, other than the fact that it had a cool view back into St. Andrews. And I think that over time, the, you know, I pushed the edge of the envelope uh, to the edge and beyond with the castle course, knowing that history would allow the course to be uh, adjusted over generations to achieve its final potential. Whereas if I built something that was mundane, uh, mediocrity could never be increased. Nobody would ever uh, take mediocrity and improve it, where they could take something that I made where the volume was too high and they could dial it back, they couldn't dial it up. So, you know, I've spent many, many hours musing that very question. uh, And I'll say that I'll, I'll go to bed my final resting place happy knowing that I pushed harder uh, than I might have done but the end result long after my passing will be the better for it yeah I think that's a great point when you look at a lot of the great designs of you know the golden age they were the boldest courses of that era I mean you look at when McDonald started to use the Brits design they called it um, you know his Foley Um, you look at Mackenzie's design of Cyprus he was scared that it was going to be too difficult too bold that but the natural beauty is what saved it I don't think that uh, you know yeah I agree with you you know the boldest uh, of designs over time uh, have won out and nobody's going to be talking about mediocrity and I, I knew going into it at St. Andrews that uh, you know you're you're going into a uh, you know, the lion's den, you know, everyone has an opinion. It didn't matter what I did. If I did something that appeased to most people, they'd say, yeah, you know, such a, a waste of a great site. It could have been so much more. And if I pushed too hard, I'd get what I get now. You know, well, you know, he just used every toy in the box and, you know, pushed too hard and built something that's just too much. I'd rather history painted it that way than the opposite. I hate, hate, hate to be called mediocre. Yeah, I mean, everybody's, in your business too, everybody's a second-guessing critic. Like, none of them were out there and, and you know, spending the hours on site. Um, so I, I completely understand what you're saying, and I, I, I think bold designs, you know, over time will, you know, prove to be better than what they originally were thought of. Um, so let's move on. Robbie wants to know, when, when you're building a course, what's the hardest part of the course to manufacture and have look natural, whether it's bunkers or mounds. Oh, that's easy. That's easy. Tees. 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 <laughs> Who wants to hit off a spot that's not flat? <laughs> that's true. So how do I build something that's very minimalist and natural, and oh, by the way, it has to be flat? So by far, the, the hardest thing to shape and make look good on any golf course are the tees. It's a good question and an easy answer. Uh-huh. Bring more of those on. Yeah. Um, so comparison of experience at Bandon versus uh, Sand Valley. That's another good one. Uh, another question that I've thought about myself. I, when I did Bandon in my 20s, I, I knew what I knew through instinct. I didn't know why I knew it. I just knew that golf courses needed to be white because it's windy. I knew that bunkers needed to be deep because the wind blows the sand out of them. This was all born out of a childhood in Scotland. I just took what I knew uh, and replicated it on a different site. But I didn't really know why I was doing it. I I couldn't intellectualize it. I couldn't deconstruct it and explain it to you. It was all raw instinct and feel uh you fast forward 20 years with 20 years of doing this and to some extent experimenting and trying out different things now at sand valley i think i know i i'm twice the age i was when i was building band and now i have a good idea of why things have to be the way they are what you know leads to a good end result and what doesn't so there's 
guess experience is the final answer, but the the explanation's more long-winded. Yeah. Um, so one question before we let you get out of here. We don't want to take up too much of your time. Um, if you were going to play five courses the rest of your life, what five courses would they be? And none of them mine, because that will make it easier. Okay. Uh well, the old course at St Andrews would have to be right up there because that's just a, a a great course to play. And if I could play with a different group every single day, that would make it even better because the whole world comes to the old course at some point. So I would get to meet the entire world and play on a great golf course if I only ever played the old course for the rest of the time. But that would be one of my five. I. Uh, I guess Macrahanish, where I spent my childhood with my father and my grandfather, and I'm still a member, uh, and my family have been members there for 70-odd years, so half its history. Uh, so i definitely take the old course at Macrahanish and put it on my list. So that would be two. Uh, if I jump down to England, uh, it'd probably have to be Sunningdale Old uh, or St. George's Hill. Which one of those two would I pick? Hmm, that's tricky. Uh, you know, I might even pick St. George's Hill over Sunningdale uh, just because it's even quirkier than Sunningdale. Uh, and then if I jump across to the east coast of the U.S., oh, it'd have to be national because that's another quirky one that's full of whimsy and probably everybody gets to it eventually. It might take a little longer than the old course, but whoever I missed at the old course would be playing at the national, so I'd go there. Uh, and then coming to the west coast, well, I'd have to be Cypress Point. That's that's easy. That's that would be my five. Can Man. you get me tea times at all five of those for 2017? <laughs> I, I I'm gonna try and get mine first, and then I'll I'll let you know if I can bring a second. <laughs> I could get you. I could get you on about half of those. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's. Uh, I think those are high on every golfer's bucket list. So you know, and then yeah. it, then it's the means of getting there. Yeah, and getting on. Uh huh. So. Hey, David, I really appreciate you coming on and spending uh, an, over an hour with us. And uh, we're my pleasure. excited to you know, keep uh, tabs on the progress of your new projects. And I'm excited to get out and see some of your existing ones this summer. All right. I'll see you at Sand Valley uh, sometime this summer. And you better make it to the West Coast and see Bandon Dunes and Gamble Sands at some point. Yeah, yeah, they're all on my uh, radar. So let me know when you're uh, up at Sand Valley. You know, it's four hours from uh, from me, so it's it's not that bad of a drive. Would love to meet sometime. Uh, I'm guessing this summer the chances are I'm there. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, thanks so much, David, and I appreciate it again. No problem. See you bye. later. Bye bye. Bye.